Welcome to the True Neighbor Podcast. My name is Tom Breyer. My guest today is Ann Palmer, the Director of Engagement at a well-known digital marketing firm here in Harrisburg called Ann Culture. Ann is a master in relationship building, both professionally and personally. She's one of those people who possesses a rare ability to make genuine connections with folks from all walks of life from the moment she meets them. During the pandemic, Anne has thought deeply about how we can continue to maintain connection despite restrictions on gathering in person. In this episode, we talk about how we can network and continue to build relationships during the pandemic. We focus on how to make eye contact and how to express ourselves via Zoom, what it means to be an active listener, how to talk with the proper cadence online, how to make a productive large group dialogue, her favorite icebreakers, what it takes to be a good question asker, and what it takes to be a good listener. Anne's insights and study of relationship building are particularly relevant right now because we all need connection, especially during this difficult time. Without further ado, I bring you our next true neighbor, Ann Palmer. All right, I'm here with Ann Palmer. Ann, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks, Tom. This is a conversation that I think everybody is, uh, everybody needs right now because we're experiencing a new world of uh, connectivity and relationship building, and you are obviously the uh, go-to person for me on that. And so um, I'm excited to chat with you. But before we jump into it, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, and what you're doing professionally right now? Sure. Thanks a lot, Tom. Um, I am the director of engagement for a design company. Um, we focus on human-centered design. And for us, engagement means how do we build relationships with the kind of people that we want to work with who will work together to build a new future. Um, when I think about that, it really centers on authentic relationship building. And in the past two months, the challenge with that has been, how do you do that through technology? Um, before my work at Ant Culture, where I am currently, I uh, ran marketing departments, worked for an executive MBA program, recruiting, I've worked on kind of countless projects across, across the region, lots of coordination, lots and lots of people. And the thing that I love most is meeting, meeting new folks. <laughs> no, and, and it's, uh, in a way, it's kind of like interviewing. You know, it, I think you get better at networking and relationship building the more you do it. And what's tough right now is that it's new for everybody. Um, how would you, so if, if we're kind of thinking back pre-pandemic, just uh, from an understanding standpoint, how would you define relationship building? Is that is there a specific definition for that, or is it more kind of a, a broad approach to just connecting with people in your profession or your in your network? Um, that is a really good question. So relationship building for me is about finding ways to, it sounds a little cliche, but to add value. Um, but a great way to do that is just simply to care about people, to care about their stories and to listen with respect and interest. Um, one of the keys to that is asking really good questions and then caring about the answer. So people want to be seen, acknowledged. They want to be known for who they are. And fundamentally, we want to be loved. 
And so if you can bring those things in a relationship building process, I see you, I acknowledge you, I want to know you, and I will treasure the gift that you are. That's to me what it means to build relationships. Ultimately though, we wanna build a future that is better and brighter and everything that's created in the world, whether it's the pen I'm holding in my hand or the software that we're using for this podcast, was created because more than one person worked together to do that. Nothing is independent. And so there's the heart of relationship building, the human connection, but then also the outcome of what happens when you're able to connect. And to me, that's the most exciting piece about this, not just knowing people, but the results that come from that. And so it sounds like a deeper approach to getting to know someone than say, for example, Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People, uh, which is kind of more of a transactional way to make a sale. What, what you're saying is really about getting to know someone on a personal level, not just from a business perspective, but to actually get to know them as, as a human being. Is that fair to say? Yeah, and it's almost never about a transaction. Um, in fact, if someone's trying to sell something, then I think almost all of us instinctively shut down. To me, selling is trying to convince someone to do something that they don't necessarily want to do or it's not in their best interest. For me, a, a sale or, which I, I mean, I actually effectively do sell, but um, it's based on finding this win-win between two parties. And the only way to find that kind of middle ground where it's good for you and it's good for me is to really deeply understand what is it that you're trying to accomplish? How can I help you accomplish that? Um, it's a fascinating thing to be able to do. Absolutely. And it's something you can learn, right? I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm sure some of this is innate, but it's a skill set that if you practice, you can get better at. I'd say so. Um, I think some of it comes with first knowing who you are. Um, it's really hard to connect if there's no solid ground, right? So knowing your interests, then along with that, being curious. So asking good questions, Tom, you're amazing with asking good questions, um, genuinely listening to the answer. You know, those are the things that you can practice. They're so small. Um, one other thing is to remember that everyone else is just as scared to take a first step. And um, I look around, I do a ton of networking or did in, in the real world when we could be in a room together. But I look around a room full of people and I also remember like, there was a time before I met my very best friend, like at some point, she and I said hi to each other for the first time. And when I'm in a room full of people, I'm like, I wonder who you are and what impact you might have on my life and what a gift you might be to know. I, it's like walking into, I don't know, a candy store and having the opportunity to say like, I don't know you yet, but I'm so excited to get to know who you are. And I think that perspective of knowing that other people feel just as awkward as you do is so important because I've been in networking events by myself thinking like, oh my God, I cannot believe that I'm here and you know everybody probably knows each other, but that's not the case really. I'm sure at a lot of these events, uh, it's just knowing that everybody else is kind of in the same boat and getting to know them uh, on 
that basis, which is just that they are there for the same reason you are. Um, do you have any go-to conversation starters? So like if you were to go up to someone for the first time, do you kind of look at how they're engaging with others before you approach them? Do you look at what they're wearing or is there like a certain way you approach a conversation before you start it? Um, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of observation that goes into into anything. I mean, you want to use all of the information that's available to you. Um, so a couple things. I do have a couple pocket questions that I, I always keep tucked in my back pocket. Um, a really wonderful go-to is what are you most excited about lately? Like what, what are you curious about? Because the thing that someone's curious about is clearly something that they're interested in. I like it way better than, oh, so what do you do? Um, you know, or tell me about your job because people's job may not be the very first thing that they're excited to talk about. So giving an opportunity for a positive interaction, um, that, that question, what are you most curious about opens up that door. I can't tell you though, how many great friends I've made by complimenting their shoes. I don't think that's going to work for you, Tom, as well as it works <laughs> I don't for know. me. I think that would work for me actually. <laughs> yeah. And then I also set up, this is, I'm telling you like everything, but I set up informal, um, contests in my own head like the best shoe contest so anytime i walk into a networking event i'm like wonder who here has the best shoes or i'll try and figure out something like who traveled the furthest to be here or i don't know i set the bar really really low and try and keep that kind of engagement entertaining for myself um if i meet one great person then the event was a total success for me and that way I don't feel like I have to shake everyone's hand or um, it just makes it a lot more fun to gamify it a little. One of the things you just said that I find really interesting to think about is, you know, building relationships is not only dependent on asking the right questions, but it's also dependent on having the right answers. And so sometimes I have an impulse when I'm talking to someone I don't know very well to try to, to respond by saying something that relates to me. So if they're telling a story about a place that they visited in my brain, I think, oh, I've been there or I have some experience where I can relate directly to that. But then I also think, well, I don't want to be a topper either. You know, bringing it back to yourself is appropriate, you know, depending on the gist of the conversation. But it can also be, I think, sometimes uh, a shift away from the person that you're talking to. Do you think about that, too, just in terms of? how to respond in a conversation when you're getting to know somebody? Yeah, it's a little bit like a seesaw. I mean, you, you can't be constantly like pumping someone for information without sharing uh, those points of connection. But how do you do that in a way that you add value, say about the trip that you took to Paris when they're describing um, their experience? And then, um, kind of wrapping it up with another question that keeps the conversation moving. I think a lot of times people think about relationship building as one plus one equals two. Like if I do this, then I'll get that. And this goes back to your transactional point. But I see it a lot more like this is a choose your own adventure and you never know what the next step in that is. But I want to keep taking steps with somebody until I get to the heart of what they need or what they want. Um, and so it's more like a football game in, in that it's a game of inches. Like give a little, take a little, give a little, take a little, and then 
you know, at the end of the day, we end up doing a deal together or uh, I don't know, you know, starting a new business or something. Yeah, no, that's a good metaphor for it. It is a game of inches. Um, and so obviously now we are in a different world of networking and, you know, at, when you think about it at first, you know, when I even thought about the idea of networking in a pandemic, it almost seems impossible. You know, and I, my first thought when I think of professional development is being in a room with other people, you know, having conversations with those you don't know very well. It's kind of the serendipity of public interaction that really stands out to me. Um, but I know you've thought a lot about what relationship building can look like during a pandemic as well. What are some kind of things that come to mind right away? in terms of what people can do to continue building out their network at a time like this? Sure. I think the the fundamental is the same as it was pre-pandemic, and that is be curious. Whatever that thing is that sparks your attention, that you're most interested in, there are other people who are also curious about that. There are communities that are engaging online. Um, One other point about it is that nobody has a playbook right now. It is a a blank slate. So there's no one who's doing this better than you. Um, and I think that just trying things, I was reading a, an HBR article, Harvard Business Review article about strategy in a time of ambiguity when all bets are off. And in that case, um, when it's a totally wide open future, the best thing to do is to, to act um, even if it's an in, imperfect action, and then to iterate on that. So for me, things like participating in um, LinkedIn Live broadcasts or webinars or looking again at digital marketing strategies, um, publishing more content, those are all ways that you can continue to build a network. The other place that I've had to lean on a little bit more is warm introductions or second degree connections. So the question like, hey, who do you know that I really should know or who would be curious about this or who is great to talk to in your world? And then being bold enough to say, would you mind connecting me with them? You know, we're all at home. So it's really hard to do this. And but that doesn't mean it has to stop. And I think that the people who do this really well, whether they're businesses or individuals, will end up um, with a much richer world picture and a lot more opportunities because they've taken the time to continue building those bridges. Absolutely. What are some of the challenges you see in virtual interactions? I know you mentioned in, in an article I was reading that you had written about, um, you know, it's a, a different cadence. Uh, eye contact's a little different. You know, do you, what do you wear? How do you compensate for an introduction without a handshake? I mean, what, what comes to mind for you right away in terms of things that we ordinarily take for granted, but that are either different or maybe even more pronounced in a virtual conversation? Yeah, I mean, well, the first thing, like, what do you wear? I would say that it's probably a good idea to still wear pants, even if you're on Zoom. I agree with that suggestion. Yeah, you endorse <laughs> that. Um, no, I would, I guess some of the things that are a lot different are the the vast amount of information that we get from body language, from in-person cues, even from the energy that you feel from other people. Um, All of that's stripped away here. So being more compassionate, assuming the best intent of others, I think is useful. 
um, since so much can get lost in translation. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell's latest book, Talking to Strangers, talks about how difficult it is to communicate even under ordinary circumstances, how much gets lost um, in an interaction. On Zoom, when it's all video, there are some like practical things you can do, um, lighting, the being aware of the body language that you're portraying. Um, I look at photographers and actors and models um, to say like, how can I make this inter interaction with an impersonal lens be one that is as engaging as possible. Um, Maureen Dowd had a similar question for the, for the New York Times. She asked Tom Ford, the, the um, designer, how can I look good on Zoom? So I would say look up those tips, although I don't think I have enough powder to look anywhere near as good as Tom Ford looks. How many do? <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> One of the things that um, you're very good at is starting a conversation with uh, an easy icebreaker. And you and I spoke a little bit about this um, after we did a Zoom event together, but about how revealing it can be to ask somebody an open-ended question to, to get started. Um, why are icebreakers such a good way to start off a Zoom meeting or, especially right now, conduct an interaction virtually? I think they changed the script. Um... As humans, like I said, we want to be known. But most of the time, whenever you meet someone, there's this standard, how you doing? My name is Anne. I work for a design company. Like, there's a very prescribed way that we are introduced to one another. But um, what if the question was, what's the first thing you remember buying with your own money, right, as an icebreaker? I mean, for me, the first thing I remember buying with my own money, I grew up in a tiny town and we had a festival every August, well, Shippensburg, the corn festival. And I remember like the power of having a couple dollars in my pocket to do whatever I wanted with, you know? But that gives you a story to connect with, an experience that we've all had. What's the first thing you remember buying with your own money? I vividly remember being in a 99 cent store at the beach <laughs> and buying a pack of juicy fruit. Oh man. <laughs> yeah. I was probably like four or five years old. I was thrilled. <laughs> I bet. And so it's these things that establish a very easy point of connection. Everyone has a story. Everyone's bought a pack of gum. That reminds me like when I was little, I used to sneak out of, so we went to church every Sunday, but um, we were dismissed after the children's chat to go down to the nursery, right? So I would take my offering money and the nursery attendants would let us go to the corner store. And like you, um, that was a, a penny candy store. So please don't tell God that I spent my offering on penny candy, but I did. <laughs> I don't think, I don't think he's one of our listeners yet. So you're good. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I, there are lots and lots of great resources for icebreaker questions and I am, they increase the connection and vulnerability um, the humanity of interactions. And I think that that's really important. I've heard you mention vulnerability a few times in our conversations, and it's actually a word I've used on the campaign trail a bit to only to say that politicians often avoid vulnerability like the plague. You know, they tend to avoid town halls or confrontation or criticism or anything that could challenge 
their actions or at least their worldview. Um, why is vulnerability such an important part of connecting? Yeah. Um, so I've done a lot of research around high-performing teams and around psychological safety. Um, as humans, we need to feel safe in order to engage, right? If I'm terrified, if my heart is beating fast, I'm in a different state of mind than if I'm with people that I know I love, right? We can all identify with that. But in order to build a relationship, we need to create safety and it needs to not just be contrived, but actual real safety. So you do that through venturing in small ways, showing vulnerability. Like I may not know the answer to this, or I'm so curious about how can I learn more? It takes a lot of humility to be vulnerable and a lot of um, faith that the world will meet you with the best that it has to offer. And yeah, sometimes it hurts a lot. When you're building relationships, you have to take the time to establish that safety or people can't open up to you. They can't actually let themselves be fully known. And that's not on them, that's on, that's on you, if that makes sense. No, it does. And I think it establishes a sense of trust. Uh, you know, if you, if you know that somebody's owning a shortcoming or explaining a difficulty, I think it reveals a deeper sense of their character, which when you get to know somebody, especially at first, is a really strong way to establish a connection. Um, you spoke or wrote a little bit about uh, large group dialogues in your recent article um, and what makes an effective conversation for those who are, whether it's a conference call or a meeting, um, anything with more than, you know, a handful of people, what, how can those run smoothly at a time like this? Yeah, I think some organization goes a long way. Um, you're Tom, you're always super prepared. So understanding who's in the room as much as you can, having a thoughtful moderator, um, being clear about who's supposed to speak next about what, making sure that your conversations are run by an agenda so there aren't surprises. And these are just kind of kind of basic things. I think one of the places that I'm really curious about is the world of conferences. Um, how do we continue to, well, I guess this applies to school too, um, as both K-12 and higher ed have moved online, when it's one person speaking to a group of participants. How do those participants continue to stay engaged in that conversation? And in many ways, I think that we're falling really, really short of having actual engaging interactions in that one-to-many Zoom call or conference or even classroom. Um, this seems to me to be an opportunity to say, rather than trying to pick up an in-person experience and turn it into something digital, how can we take a digital experience and make it awesome? And there's a lot of work that needs to be done there. Are you worried at all about fatigue and being constantly online? I mean, we already lived in a world where we were glued to our devices, but at least we had some more discretion over how we could conduct ourselves in, in person and how we could meet others outside of our conventional schedule. Um, have you experienced that at all? Just a kind of a tiredness of, of being online and have, 
others expressed similar concerns to you? Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's, um, well, as of the last two months, a growing body of uh, research and articles that you can find about Zoom fatigue. And I don't, I'm not calling Zoom out in particular, but, um, you know, and I also have noticed an increase in like stress headaches and the practical, like, you know, our bodies are not made to, to sit and stare at a backlit screen for eight, nine, 10 hours a day. Um, I think there are some practical things that we should do to shift our culture to accommodate this a little more instead of 60 minute meetings, come back to, to 50 or um, from 30 to 25 so that people have a chance to stand up and stretch. Um, I don't know that we have kind of norms around this yet, but it is definitely an issue. Yeah, no, I even feel it myself sometimes. Um, and it's tough because each interaction you have online is a first, the first time you're having that interaction with the person you're on with. And so maintaining that, uh, you know, um, first impression when you've been on a screen all day, I think can be a little bit of a challenge. Um, one of the things I found really interesting in your article was when you spoke about emotional intelligence and how vital that is for connection. Uh, how, if at all, does someone's emotional intelligence and the way they portray it change online? Well, I don't know that you can necessarily like portray emotional intelligence, something that you're like working and developing. Um, emotional intelligence for me comes from the heart of being willing to risk being wrong or being willing to learn. It comes from um, humility and curiosity and empathy. And those aren't things that you can, you can't like mimic that. It has to be something that is from, from within you. I mean, that said though, you can ask good questions. You can listen thoughtfully. You can remain obviously engaged when the temptation might be to disengage or to mess around with your phone or to be distracted. Um, so there are practices there that can help build emotional intelligence. That is a whole body of really fascinating work. Um, Daniel Coleman's the researcher there, but emotional intelligence is one of the strongest predictors of success, and it is something that you can change. So you know, there's been a lot of a lot of research and articles about the ways that you can enhance and develop your emotional intelligence. Do you have any intuitions on how networking will change going forward? I mean, if we just look kind of at, even at a um, best case scenario for the pandemic, you know, there was actually news released today that um, a vaccine was effective or shown to be successful on eight people. They're going to clinical trials now. Um, and if that all goes well, there might be a vaccine by the end of this year or early next year. But that's all to say that any change in the way we conduct ourselves in society, I think is still months away. Um, do you see the way we interact with one another um, more resorting to what it was before, trending back in the other direction? Or do you think that there are some aspects of networking in this time that will continue um, once we begin to return to a uh, post-COVID world? 
That's such a good question. Um, and I think it goes way beyond networking too, to a question of how do we want to apply the lessons that we've learned over the last few months. Um, I would say there are a couple things at the heart of that, and then I'll kind of circle back to actually answering the question. Immediately after we went into lockdown, our worlds constricted, and we looked inward at family and friends and health and livelihood. Um, but at the same time, they also broadened. One of the things that struck me is that all jobs, 100% of them, are remote jobs now. Um, so that means that every opportunity is accessible. So is every person that you've ever wanted to talk with. In a networking event in Harrisburg, you're constrained to the people who show up, who live within a radius where they can drive to this event. You know, it's a, it's a fixed geography, it's a small pool. So this actually opens up a lot of opportunities to connect with people who you may never have met otherwise. There's just not a clear path to do that yet. There are some apps like Twine. Um, it, that's a, an app that connects strangers together, basically, around meaningful topics. Another one um, came out of Cornell called Quarantine Buddy. Um, that was kind of cool. I met a student that, um, it, just fascinating student who lives outside of Philadelphia, and we've kind of texted back and forth. How you doing? Um, so I think that there are some startups that are working on solving this problem of how do I access complete strangers when I'm completely stuck in my house. And um, I hope that as the pandemic eases, that we continue to hold to the lessons that we started with, the value of what's really important, but don't lose the opportunities that that this has opened up, whether that's connecting with people that you couldn't reach before or um, a broader sense of community. Now that's so true. It's, um, it is easier right now to connect with folks who are outside your, you know, normal geographic boundary. I mean, even politically, we had a campaign event with folks from California, New York, and the, our district last week. Uh, and the people in California introduced me to their friends from Harrisburg. And so it actually enhanced the serendipity in a way that wouldn't have happened uh, pre-pandemic. Um, and so, you know, using the interest that you have as a way to facilitate conversation, regardless of where somebody is, I think is a really powerful message because you might meet people that you otherwise would never cross paths with in person. And that's a pretty cool thing. One of the other things that I've been thinking about a lot is what does digital citizenship mean? You know, if all of our interactions are happening through a screen, right? There's video chat. We've talked a lot about that. There's social platforms, like Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, TikTok. Um, but then there are things that are larger questions. Like, what does it mean to be a student? Or what does it mean to be a citizen of the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania? And I am really curious about how that dialogue evolves. I think about digital 
governance and digital citizenship in a world where, yes, we still need roads and bridges and functional hospitals and practical things in the physical world, but what does my identity add up to in the digital world? Um, how do I interact? How do I conduct myself? What services do I access? How do I manage my data within this space? What belongs to me and what belongs to the creators of the platforms on which I operate? These are such fascinating questions that we get to wrestle with going forward. And I do think that the pandemic has hastened maybe that conversation, hopefully in meaningful ways, because we do need to sort it out as a society. What does it mean to be a digital citizen? No, that's a fascinating point. And I even read, I guess it was a couple of weeks ago now, but um, you know, Zoom hadn't disclosed that they were giving users data to Facebook. Uh, they'd also said in their terms and conditions that um, the uh, video to video conferencing was essentially immune from cyber attacks and that turned out not to be true um and so they've since rewritten their their terms and conditions but uh you know we've essentially accepted these platforms as part of our lives without i think at least from a policy standpoint looking very deeply at like you said what that means for the individual you know whose data is being taken and how is it being used and do we have any uh ability to control it um professionally is is that something that comes up at all in your professional interactions? You know, what type of platform is being used or um, have you been Zoom hacked at all in, in your digital uh, interactions? I have not been Zoom hacked, although I've thought about Zoom hacking myself. Don't tell anyone that. Just because I'm so like, curious, I really want the ability to connect with people outside of this, outside of the bubble in which I live. I'm not Zoom hacking to be clear. Um, but I think the broader conversation, yeah, it comes up a lot. It comes up whenever we're designing technology that's used internationally under GDPR regulations, which stipulate you have to disclose if you're using cookies, for example. Um, these conversations come up for me in terms of what are the ethics that guide the technology that is built um, the way in which our data is used. We look at applications in healthcare, government, education, where there's this line between privacy and efficacy. For example, like if I have a batch of healthcare data, I can't do this within the United States, but say I have anonymized patient records and want to understand how a particular drug applied to a particular batch of patient data, would, would this drug be helpful in dealing with uh, conditions? There's a good to humanity to being able to access that data and to use the most intelligent analysis that we can in order to find cures for diseases. But there's also ethics involved in using people's data. There's questions of ownership of that data. Um, should, I, should I benefit when you use my data? Um, and I don't, this is a very much evolving field. Um, there's a lot of work that needs to be done in applying transparency and ethics to 
questions like this. Um, one thing I will say, though, having worked with startups and founders and nobody can, has a crystal ball and can see the future. So when I write my privacy policy as a startup founder with three people in my company, and then my company ends up being the platform that the world operates on, you know, it's easy to look backwards and say, like, what were you thinking? Why didn't you figure this out? But it's so much harder to do that looking forwards. And so I think that there has to be space for grace and collaboration and iteration as we figure out what's best and right going forward. And those are not easy conversations because understanding the technology and understanding the, the ethics and understanding the implications are fields that don't overlap well or often. It's well said. And I think it requires a certain flexibility in how we're using this technology and how we approach it. Um, I think being rigid with such uncertainty can only lead to, uh, you know, a, a more complex internet and type of interaction. And so, like you said, it's learning on the fly, admitting mistakes, and just focusing foundationally on ethics and transparency, I think is a way to move forward uh, in a way that helps everybody. Um, in the final minute or two, Anne, I know uh, you are a, an avid and voracious reader. Uh, what are your, have you read some favorite books over the past two months during quarantine that you, uh, that come to mind right away as recommendations you would give to someone who's listening? Sure. Um, I have a couple. I'll start with The Culture Code by Daniel Coyle. That's a lot about building high-performance teams and vulnerability and safety and execution. Um, so that would be the business book that I would recommend. Um, the novel, A Gentleman in Moscow by Roy Towles. It's about um, a gentleman who is quarantined effectively in a hotel and um, he's unable to leave it for, for reasons. Um, is that has, like the underground man style of yeah, like the 21st bit. century version? <laughs> um, it's just wonderful. And I think that one, it's a great novel, but two, the amount of possibility, even when you're geographically limited, it's really only limited by your imagination. The third one is one I just read this weekend, um, Untamed by Glennon Doyle. Um, I think our society has some work to do around racial equity and gender parity and acceptance. And this book talks a lot about the extreme power that comes from knowing who you are and leaning into what is true and right with an open heart. Um, and I, I think that that is, that serves all of us well. Those sound like three fascinating books. I know I'm adding them to my list. Um, and it's always a treat to talk to you. Um, thanks for taking the time out of your busy schedule to share your insights with us. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Tom. I want to interview you sometime soon. That's a deal. All right. Thank you. Mm -hmm.